Today's guest is a professor, author, diplomat, and businesswoman who served as the 64th Secretary of State of the United States. She was Secretary of State in 1997, and at that time became the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. She is none other than Secretary Madeleine Albright. From the Aspen Institute, I'm Amina Akhtar. This is Aspen Insight. On today's episode, Secretary Albright and I talk to immigration, her rules in the classroom, and even how she stores her coveted brooch collection. This conversation was recorded earlier this summer at the Aspen Security Forum. Take a listen to our conversation. Secretary Albright, it's an absolute pleasure to have you in the studio today. I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for asking me. In 1997, which really wasn't that long ago, you broke history when you held the highest position of government as a female. What do you think of all the women making major moves today, uh, specifically in Congress? I think it's very important. I have for a long time talked about the importance of women being part of every process, and certainly the political process, um, mainly because uh, women do are needed, our ideas are needed, and also women are at least half the population, and so there needs to be even more representation. But I think that what's just happened in the last Congress is remarkable, and I've met with a lot of the women, and I'm very excited about the fact that there are so many women in Congress now. So you've met with some of them. Which one can you tell us, has the best sense of humor? Uh, Well, I think somebody that actually has a great sense of humor is Speaker Pelosi, and she has to have that. (laughs) Absolutely. Going off of that, where do you think there's work to be done in terms of having female representation in office? I think we've just begun. And if you go back to what I said before, um, there's more than half the population is female, and we're nowhere near that. I also think that it isn't just in elected office, but generally um, in appointed office and at all levels of the government. And then I also think in the private sector that it's very important. Uh, We are seeing more women CEOs coming in. Um, We need women in um, a variety of non-governmental organizations. Uh, I'm the mother of three daughters, and so... and. two granddaughters, so I'm into this in a big way. And I really do think uh, that it's very important uh, for women to help each other and to be supportive of each other. But it's better for our country and other countries if women are involved. In terms of the 2020 race, we've got a lot of great female candidates who are out there right now. What do you say to people who say we're not ready to have a female president? You know, I find that so crazy. The U.S. is always proud of being number one. There are countries that have female presidents. Um, We had an incredibly smart and good female candidate uh, in the last election who I think was one of the uh, truly best prepared and smartest people I know, and um, we know what happened. So, uh, But I think uh, we need to have people that are smart and effective and prepared um, and and I think it's it's kind of ironic that uh, we're not uh, number one in this particular area. Absolutely. Are you by chance planting the seed of politics in your grandchildren's minds? 
I always try, I have to say, and, but it's in the gene pool, so we'll see how it goes. And I have only one regret in my life, is that I never ran for office. I have had really incredible appointed jobs, and I've loved those, but as I look at people that get elected, I think it is a very important part of trying to explain yourself well to people and then trying to understand what their needs are uh, from a different perspective than somebody who's been appointed. What advice do you have for women who are in either male-dominated industries or male-dominated workplaces who are struggling to get ahead? Well, I do think the following thing that is just a statement of fact. Women have to work twice as hard as men. And um, I have said, uh, not so facetiously, that there's plenty of place in the world for mediocre men. There is no room for mediocre women. And I think that one, that's just a statement of fact. I also do think that what is very important as a woman is to make sure that there are other women in the room. It is very lonely to be the only woman. And so the single most famous statement I ever made was that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Uh, I think we're better off uh, if there are other women in the room um, and if in meetings. Um, I think this has probably happened to every woman. You, If you're the only woman, you think to yourself, I'm going to say something today. And then you think, no, it'll sound stupid. And nobody, uh, you know, and so you don't say it. And then some man says it, and everybody thinks it's really brilliant, and you're really mad at yourself about not having spoken. And so when I teach, I make it a real point of getting women uh, to interrupt uh, and to be sure to speak up. And um, and I also, um, I think it's important never to be the queen bee. You know, if uh, there's only one job, it's only going to be for me, and I don't want you as competition. Mm -hmm. I think we're better off uh, when we cooperate uh, and network and understand each other, and our, uh, but we have to work twice as hard. There's just no question. Thank you. Um, this concept of self-doubt, um, thinking, I mean, I've definitely been there thinking, I don't want to say something. I'm scared I'll sound unintelligent or stupid. We also have something that I've done in the past, saying sorry a lot, apologizing a lot in the workplace. How do you think women of all ages approach this self-doubt in their mind when I'm it comes so to I'm so interested the way you say that because one of the things that I have noticed, every woman, before she finally asks the questions, will say, I'm sorry to interrupt, or uh, you may have heard this before, or um, this is just my opinion, or we have always some kind of uh, introductory thing that puts yourself down before you've ever begun. And I do think that one of the problems is I think we project our self-doubt onto other women. Um, and uh, we're very judgmental about each other. So it's not just about ourselves, but there is always this, um, oh, you don't really have to listen to what I have to say. Going into the role and responsibility of being a public speaker, holding a position in the government, we see all these current politicians who are giving into harmful rhetoric around immigrants. What do you say to that, the responsibility that they have to the people and their constituents? Well, I, I, this is one of the subjects which is very close to my heart. I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was 11 years old, and I describe myself as a grateful American. Uh, and I really do think that America is stronger as a result of our diversity um, one of the things I love to do is to give uh, the naturalization certificates. And when I look at the 
people coming in. It's such a diverse picture, and that is our strength in every single way. And so um, I do think that we need to understand that diversity is something that is good for America and that people that come to this country want to be a part of our system. Absolutely. And as the daughter of a Muslim immigrant, I greatly admire when you speak about your experience, because I think the more that immigrants speak up, the more that the public will see, well, they're just like us. They have the same hopes, dreams, and wishes for their families. Well, America is the place for um, people to come and to to really dream the American dream. And so I'm just appalled at what is going on now and the way that immigrants are described and um, denigrated in every single way and, and, and accused of things that don't make, it's ridiculous, outrageous. It's un-American. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best thing to say. It is un-American and the Statue of Liberty is weeping. When you came to the United States, uh, you became a citizen in 1957. I want to ask what that day was like for you, if you remember the feeling you had when you woke up. Well, I have to tell you what is interesting. I came to the United States when I was 11 years old. Um, And the thing, I have to tell you the story because I so wanted to fit in. We came November 11th, 1948, and of course then Thanksgiving happened quickly. Mm -hmm. And I remember in school singing, you know, we gathered together and I heard somebody asking for God's blessing. And I thought, who's asking? And it turned out I was asking because I learned English in England. And I just wanted to be an American more than anything. It took us quite a long time to get our um, citizenship. I was actually uh, between my sophomore and junior year in college. Um, and I, had, I hadn't focused on this. They thought I was a foreign student, even though I'd gone to high school in Colorado and spoke American English. Uh, but I got my citizenship in Denver, at the courthouse in Denver, uh, and I was just so overwhelmed with gratitude, something that has stuck with me ever since. So you have also had a lot of lived experiences that the public can gain life lessons from. And I wanted to ask you about your time as a teacher. You've won Teacher of the Year Award several times. And in terms of implementing that into our lives when teaching, whether it's a student or a colleague or a friend, what advice do you have in approaching teaching? Well, first of all, I think it is really God's work because it is... Um, dealing with the next generation uh, and uh, having really quite incredible power in terms of knowing that what you teach um, will have some impact. And you are, I think teaching is a very hard and in some ways lonely job because there's this huge responsibility and you're standing up there in front of a group of students and they're writing it down. Or, I, By the way, I forbid iPads in my class so really? they are writing. Um, but I think that uh, it is a huge responsibility. And if you're going to do it right, you have to be aware of the responsibility and make sure that you are telling the students the truth. You cannot be there and brainwash your students. And so being very careful in terms of how you teach and to see it as a responsibility and an honor. And there's nothing more exciting than 
to see um, the kind of changes that come with the students as they learn and as they like it, and then to see your students out in the world. Uh, I have an awful, have, I've been teaching at Georgetown at the School of Foreign Service, and so I have students all over the world, and it's mm -hmm. a lot of fun. And I have to say, uh, some, many of them are in the diplomatic service in some form or another, and most recently, the current foreign minister of Japan uh, came to me, and he was one of my students in the 80s. So you never know. That is amazing. In terms of your rules, you said no iPads. What about laptops? No laptops. Okay. Um, and so, and partially because you're up there teaching and you see uh, everybody kind of with these machines, and you don't know whether they're doing their email or, in fact, saying, gosh, this professor is such yeah. an idiot, so uh, <laughs> it's better not to have them. <laughs> or they could be tweeting. <laughs> or they could be tweeting. So you've been involved with the Institute for a while. You're a trustee, a, an Aspen Strategy Group member, as well as being on the Aspen High Seas Initiative Leadership Council. What makes you keep coming back to us? Well, I think the Aspen Institute is the most remarkable organization. And to be frank with you, it was the only board I wanted to be on uh, because I grew up in Colorado. And when Aspen started, my father was a professor at the University of Denver, and local professors were used as resource people. So I've been coming up here since I was a teenager. Uh, and I think that the Aspen Institute continues in so many ways to be reflective of a good value system of interest in uh, learning a lot from each other and of having a, a real role in terms of talking about ideas. So I'm delighted. The last question I'd like to ask you is, well, I'd like to state if I had the choice between raiding Michelle Obama's closet or your closet, I would pick yours because I'd really like to know how you store your brooch collection. Is there a temperature-controlled vault? What does it look like? Well, I would like to raid Michelle's closet, but let me just say, no, it's very, uh, it, you, you'd laugh. Um, I have a kind of hanging things where they kind of look like little shoe, you know, just little uh, uh, slots for things, and I try to organize them uh, by species so that I know what I'm looking for. Um, and um, so I will have spiders or I will have uh, flags or uh, my memory kind of, uh, uh, I have uh, the kinds of things that I need to wear when I'm in a foreign country. Uh, the hardest part is kind of remembering uh, who gave me it. Uh, and by the way, I've come to Aspen uh, and I have my uh, uh, Native American, uh, wonderful turquoise and a variety of different things. So I try to, and because we're going to be talking about China at the Aspen Strategy Group, I have uh, brought my pigs because it's the year of the pig in China. Well, I'm very excited to see you wear them. And I love the, the brooch you're wearing today as well. Well, today I wore the owls because we need wisdom. So that's why I have the owls. Secretary Albright, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for a great interview. On the next episode, I'll be talking to Eric Stegman of the Center for Native American Youth about the importance of Native American Heritage Month and telling stories from a position of strength and indigenous resilience. 
Thank you to my colleagues who made this episode possible. Hisham Abdulhamid, Ben Berliner, Shireen Matthews, Aaron Myers, John Hogan, and Eric Evan Boxtel. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow at Aspen Institute on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our work. If you liked this episode, give us a review in your Apple podcast app. Thanks for listening.